I want to read this morning uh, again from Romans chapter 3, so if you want to stand while we read. Again, I, I, I'm wanting to do this because I feel like it's a way of sh- showing honor to God's Word and the fact that we believe that it is God's Word. So if you will read along, it says in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, now we know that where whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a grace, a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can be seated. I want you to imagine with me this morning that you go to the land of a man named Yashur. Now, Yashur was a great king. And his kingdom was called Shemayim. Now, Yashur was really well known because he was a just king. Whenever somebody brought a complaint to the king, he always found out the truth. And he always judged fairly. The problem is, those who were rebellious against King Yashur hated the king. They hated him because they knew that if their case was taken to the judge, they would be rightly judged, that they would be condemned as they should be. But the righteous of the kingdom of Yashur loved the king, because they knew this king will not show us false things, and he won't unfairly judge us. And so, when in this time, there was a man, his name was Ada. I know you're, you're liking the names. <laughs> now, Ada, he had already been condemned by the king. He had already been told, you are guilty. And at that time, the just penalty for his crime was death. But... Just like in today's day, there's one day you're announced guilty, and the next day they give you the penalty of your crime. So the next morning, Atta is walking to the courtroom. He enters the courtroom, and, and King Yashur announced his penalty. You are guilty of death. But then he paused and said to Atta, You deserve to die, but because I love you, I have arranged for 
this man, Benny, I know, again, you'll understand, I have arranged for Benny to be your substitute. And he's willing, and he's told me he's willing to do this for you. Otto was in complete shock. He could not believe that not only did the king uh, make a way for him to not have to pay his penalty, but some complete stranger was willing to die for him, to take his place, to be his substitute. So thankful, he thanks the king, not enough, and he goes back to his cell to collect the, little, the few things that he had there to go home. Now, when he gets there, his cellmate asks him, why are you so happy? You just went to get your penalty. How are, how are you back happy and going home? Well, Atta told his cellmate, he said, he told the whole story of what happened. And, and he said, this, his cellmate was like, who would die for you? You are just, you're terrible. Of course, the cellmate knew he wasn't coming back, so he wasn't worried about being friends with him anymore. So, and Atta answered, he said, someone named Benny. Do you know who he is? And the cellmate's jaw dropped to the floor. Because unlike Atta, this cellmate knew that Benny was the son of the king. He knew that Benny was his only son. And he couldn't believe that the only son of King Yashur would die for him. Why would he do that? There was no other king, no one other person to take the throne after Yashur died. At hearing that, Atta was in shock, even more so than before. And he ran out of his cell, and he was trying to get to the punish the place where the punishment would be carried out before the king's son was killed. Because now he was truly thankful. He was broken. And when he got there, it was too late. The son of the king was dying for him. There were tears in his eyes, and... And he couldn't believe it, but he was too late. Well, this story is the story of God's redemption of us. The word Yashur is the word for righteous in Hebrew. Shemayim is the word for heaven. And Beni is the word for my son. And Atta is the word for you. I used all these words because I want us to see that this story is about us. And that's what, all, that's what we're reading today in Romans chapter 3. We're reading about a king who sent his only son to die for us. Why? Because God hates sin. And we saw, we've already seen, the Apostle Paul has made it clear that we have all sinned. And he, he says it again here, we have all sinned, in verse 23, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And last week... We, we talked about some of these verses, but I didn't really go into detail because I knew that this week we would go in more detail with them. So in, uh, really our sermon today starts in verse 21 where it says, But now, 
So in the past it was different, but now, apart from the law, so in the past the law showed the righteousness of God, the law of Moses. But now the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known to us through or being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what's he saying? By the Old Testament, the law, the first five books of God's Word, also known as the Torah, or the prophets, that's everything else. And the Jews actually would have considered Moses a prophet as well. Because many of the things that Moses is talking about is are about things that will come to pass in the future. So what, what Paul is saying is, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is being revealed, and it's actually not something new. God has re- been revealing His righteousness from the beginning of time, and He's done it in the Old Testament, but now it's being made known in a different way. And this righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we talked about how our righteousness is not of our own. No one is righteous. No, not one. And so when we think about this, when we think about the fact that we cannot justify ourselves and we need a representative, just like Atta needed Beni to die for him, we need a Savior because the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ But it's not just faith in Jesus Christ, what? To all who believe. This is really important because a lot of people want to say, well, you know, if you just say a prayer, it's okay. Or you you just um, do the right things, you'll be okay. No, we must believe. Why? Because... Now there is no distinction. That's what he says at the end of verse 22. And this idea, there's no distinction. This is incredible news. The gospel is available to all. Remember before, in the Old Testament, only the Jews could be saved. Except for a few exceptions. And I can think of two that are in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab. Remember, she came in, she was an outsider, God brought her in. Ruth, same thing. I think those are pointing to what's going to happen in the future. It's a, it's a prophecy, it's a, it's a sign of the great thing that God is going to do in the New Testament. This new covenant that's in the blood of Christ is not limited to the Jews. And that is great news, right? Because only one person in this room has any lineage that I know of that would have afforded them that, right? All, everyone else, we would not be here today. We would be lost in sin. But it also, it doesn't exclude Jews. This is important. It do, the gospel doesn't just substitute Gentiles for Jews, it includes both. And that's why Paul addresses both in their sin originally. And then he lumps us all together and says, you all need, you have all sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. 
This is why there's no distinction. Because we have all sinned against God, we deserve His wrath. What wrath? Turn back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. This statement in 18 and 19 is not just to the Jews. It's to the Gentiles. So we all deserve God's wrath. And that's not good news, right? That wasn't the good news. That is the worst news we could ever get. Even the chosen people of God deserved the wrath of God. We all need God's grace. That's what he's saying. There's no distinction because we're all sinners. There's no difference because we're all sinners. We all have missed the mark of God's glory. We couldn't come to God's glory if He wanted to. Also, when we think about this, it's not about what you have done, right? Or or where you came from. Because before, the Jews were like, well, I come from this family, this family, this family, and now I'm here. Paul could trace his lineage back all the way to the 12, the 12 tribes. Isn't that incredible? And that was how the Jews were like, yes, I'm a great person. But now it's not about where we come from. It's not the influence that we have. It's not the power that we have. It's not the wealth that we have, the family we came from. No distinction. God has chosen who He wills of His own desire. But He doesn't just pick one people group now. He has allowed and spread the gospel to all men. So we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's really bad news, right? We all deserve His wrath. But what does it say in verse 24? It says, being justified as a free... Well, I put the free in, sorry. A free gift or as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. A gift is something that is freely given without requirement of repayment. If you give a gift to somebody and expect them to give you something in return, it's not a gift. It's a bribe. Right? Yeah, I receive gifts from this company. You know, how many times have you heard of a politician who said, Oh, they, th- this company just wanted to give me a gift. It was great. They gave me this 2019 Mercedes Benz. It showed up in my, my, my driveway with a, a bow on top. It had to be a gift. We know that guy was not getting a gift from this guy, other person, this company, because they wanted to just show him how much they loved the way he ruled. No, they're giving a gift because they hope that when they break the law, this ruler, this governor, whatever lawmaker this is, will side with them. They're bribing him 
to turn the other eye. But that's not what God is doing. He's not giving us a gift in hopes that we will come to Him. He's giving us a gift because we cannot come to Him. And this, this message is really important for the Christian life. If we don't understand the gospel, if we don't understand this section of Romans chapter 3, I think we don't understand Jesus. We can't understand all that we have in Christ. God gave us the gift of His grace through Jesus Christ, not because we, He saw in the future, oh, they're going to come to Christ. No, because He chose us and He made it possible for us to come to Him. I think it's interesting. We see the word gift and grace together in this passage. Isn't that interesting? It's like He's doubling down. The gift by His grace. What's grace? I think oftentimes we, we hear this term thrown around, but we don't know what it means. Grace is the goodness of God shown to those who deserve His condemnation. It is God's goodness when we deserve God's worst. We deserve His wrath, but God shows His goodness to us. That's grace by Sending His Son. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I think this, verse 24 is full of words that people use all the time but have no clue what they mean. What's redemption? Redemption. We are or were slaves to sin. And Satan himself. Christ's death paid the ransom or the price for our freedom from bondage. That's what redemption is about. It's buying us back from the slavery we've sold ourselves into. We have freely sinned before God and... We have said, okay, we want to be a part of Satan's kingdom. We're Atta. We're the enemy of God. We've sold ourselves to the king of another realm. We were slaves. Hopeless. And we see that here in Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me. Romans 6, 16 says... Do you not know that when you are that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been made free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. People don't like this. God bought us. Jesus must be the Lord of our lives. And Lord means He has complete control. He's not just our Savior, which is incredible. He's our Lord. 
Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves, so we all did this. If you're still in sin, you're doing it now. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Meaning, when you were a slave of sin, you could not do righteousness. There was no possibility. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? What was the benefit? What does it say here? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been made free from sin and enslaved to God... You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Verse 23, this is an important, if we don't understand this, we don't understand how great it is that Christ came for us. For the wages, the payment of sin is death. But the free gift, free gift, the grace, the gift of grace, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't we see that? Do we see that we were slaves? We deserved God's wrath. There was nothing in us that wanted to follow Jesus. And we see that, we saw that last week when we were reading all these passages in the Old Testament that spoke to how wicked and how hopeless we are without Christ. If we don't understand that there was no way that we were going to follow God, that we loved sin and we thought we were free, but we were slaves to sin. There was nothing we could do to stop serving sin. But God, that is the biggest, <laughs> but God changed it. He came and sent His Son a free gift by His grace. He sent Christ to pay the penalty, pay the price to set us free. We are free from sin only through Jesus Christ. So being justified as a gift by His grace this is so important. We, we aren't justified because we did something. We aren't justified because we were able to attain to something. We are justified as a gift. It's given by His grace through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Verse 25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. God made an open display. It's like, can go down the street, you know, back, I mean, there aren't a ton of stores that do this anymore, but probably New York City is this common. You know, you have these retail stores that sell clothes or whatever it may be. Well, what do they put in the front? The best. You know, the thing that they want you to buy. How many of you, when walking by a store, seeing a bloody cross, with Christ crucified, would think, man, that's the best they got. 
That's the problem. The world, they don't want a bloody cross religion anymore. They don't want a Savior who had to die for their sins because it confronts sin. We have to hold to this view that Paul is putting forth today because propitiation is so important to the gospel that if we get rid of it, this Bible might as well be thrown in the trash. Because if Christ did not propitiate the wrath of God through His blood, none of us would have a right to stand before God. We would still be under the wrath of God. Propitiation means to appease the wrath of God against sinners. Or to take away the wrath of God against sinners. God displayed it openly. He wanted the world to see at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, He was displaying the wickedness of man, the price that we had to pay. He, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty due us. What was that penalty? What was that wage? What was that payment that was due us? Romans chapter 23, or chapter 6, verse 23. Death. The death of Christ on the cross was our penalty. And it makes me think of Galatians chapter 3. If you'll turn there with me. Galatians chapter 3. This is so important for us to see that if Christ had not paid the penalty due us, we would still be under a curse. This is what it says. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. For as many as are, are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. How many in here have kept the entire law? No one. Right? So what does that say? We were or are under a curse. Period. That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians. Now then... No one is justified by the law, verse 11, before God is evident. So it's clearly seen that no one can be justified before God in doing the law because no one is able to keep the law. For the righteous man shall live by faith, it says, verse 11. But, so this is the problem. However, the law, verse 12, is not of faith. On the contrary... He who practices them shall live by them and die by them, by correlation, I would say. Verse 13, Christ, this is so, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse that was over you and I, the curse that extended from this passage in Deuteronomy 27, verse 25, that curse in verse 10 that is mentioned, was over all mankind. It was upon all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
How did he do that? How is it possible? Having become a curse for us. The curse that was upon you and I is on, was put on Christ on the cross. Why do you think he had to suffer so greatly? Why do you think it was dark? The earth trembled. The pain, the beating, all that. Why was that happening to him? Our sin was that bad. If we don't understand that, that, that truly messes it up. Because in a part of this, he says, at the end of verse 13, for it is written, cursed. This is quoting Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this was done in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ had to become a curse for us. The curse that was spoken in Deuteronomy 21 was placed upon Christ. Was it due Him? Was it because He was a sinner? No. When He was hanging on that cross, He was offering as a substitute. There's a a big word, and I will use it, and not again, but it's called penal substitutionary atonement. The penalty had to be paid. Someone had to substitute that penalty because if we paid the penalty, guess what? We would be dead in hell for eternity. Because our sin against an infinitely holy God could not be paid in our lifetime, much less a million lifetimes. We had to have a substitute, and that was Jesus Christ. He went to the cross. He propitiated, took all the wrath that God had for our sin upon Himself. That's why He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He sensed the entirety of God's wrath like never before. Up to that point in His life, Well, in eternity, because he's always existed. But in his human life, he had always experienced intimacy with God. Complete intimacy. The intimacy that he promises us. And up until that point, he knew what was coming. Why do you think he was shedding blood in his tears there in Gethsemane? He knew what was coming. Let this wrath pass. Let the cup of your wrath pass over me. But... Your will. Jesus loved to do the will of the Father. His human nature wanted the wrath of God to pass over. But he knew that wasn't possible. He wanted to do God's will. The Father's will. So that curse of being hung on a tree and crucified was placed on Christ, but it was our curse. He took our curse on the cross and redeemed us, bought us back, paid the price for that curse that was upon us, death. And not just death, complete, eternal wrath He took upon Him. That's why the substitute had to be God and man. 
He had to be man so that he could be our substitute. He had to be God because only an infinite God could take the infinite, infinite wrath of God upon him. When Jesus said it was finished, guess what? It was finished. He didn't have to go down in, hate, in Hades and fight Satan for the keys. I'm telling you, he didn't. He had already won. And that was proven when he was raised from the dead on the third day. Christ was victorious. And he took our curse upon him and delivered us. This made me think about 1 Peter. If you'll turn there with me. This is a, the, the, the middle of the, the, the sermon here. This is the meat, if, if I can say that. Because if we see what Christ did for us, it should transform who we are. Whether we're believers or unbelievers, it should transform us. This sermon has been on my mind all week and God has given me a lot of songs that have been kind of rolling through my mind and we're going to sing a few of them later. Second Peter chapter 2 21 through 25. And Peter is encouraging the believers to suffer for Christ, to be willing to suffer. Peter, the one who denied Christ because he didn't want to suffer on the day of crucifixion. But when he was raised from the dead, Peter was changed. And when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was fearless. He no longer feared death. And, and he's encouraging the believers to, to be able to suffer. And he says in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And he's quoting Isaiah 52, or 53 there. He says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Who? God the Father. He was entrusting himself to God the Father. He trusted God completely. Even in the midst of his suffering, when he was feeling that wrath of God being poured out on him, the sun darkened and all that was happening there on the cross, he was still faithfully trusting the love of the Father. The justice of his Father. The righteousness of the Father. And he himself, this is an extremely important verse 24, he himself bore our sins. There are people who consider themselves Christians that deny that Christ had to be our substitute. Somehow they believe that we can somehow come to God and offer ourselves. How is that possible? I don't know. It says He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Physically bore our punishment. So that we, you and I, might die to sin and live to righteousness. We say, for by his wounds you were healed. That means spiritually, 
physically, period. He took the curse of the law. What was one of those curses? Sickness. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When you read this, what passage comes to mind? Anybody want to shout it out? I think, I think somebody over here has it. <laughs> Isaiah, right? He's essentially trans- giving his interpretation of Isaiah 52 and 53. So let's go there. Because I want us to see that this idea, this, this truth is not new to the New Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament, but God has been speaking about this for a long time. Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to read through a, a pretty good section here, but I, I want us, I don't want you to take my word for it because these aren't my words. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This is great, right? This sounds really good. Oh, it's going to be great for his servant. But what happened? It says in verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. He's talking about the same servant who's supposed to be prospering. Right? So Christ came, and in prospering, he's high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But he had to go through suffering. Because once he was raised from the dead, he went up and he now sits at the right hand of the Father, his name above every name. His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Can you imagine what his body must have looked like? I've never seen uh, The Passion of the Christ, whatever that Mel Gibson's movie, but I've heard from people that. It was pretty awful what the body, uh, how they portrayed the body of, of Christ, okay? And I would say that that doesn't even do justice to what Christ looked like physically because of the wrath that he was enduring for us. Verse 15, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Just think about Christ as a child. Can you imagine his mother had no clue that this was going to happen to him? Looking back at what he endured for us on the cross. I couldn't imagine if my son had to go through what Christ had to go through. You know, when we see our children grow up at a from a young age, we we see that innocence and the the light of youth and but here, what does it say? He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that should be attracted to him. He, he wasn't anything special. 
People who knew Jesus growing up didn't think, man, he's, he's going to be something great when he gets older. No, they, they weren't thinking that because of his appearance. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. Isn't that interesting? Despised and forsaken of men. Throughout his ministry, he had thousands of people following him. But what happened at the cross? They stood afar off. And it was actually the women that were there more than anything. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Can you imagine? People were hiding their face from the Lord. They were hiding. They didn't want him to see him or them. We didn't want him to see us. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. This is an emphasis, emphatic. He himself bore our griefs. If we don't believe that this was a substitute, what is he saying here? And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What we said, what is he saying? We said, oh, that's, it's because of your sin that you're being afflicted. God is afflicting you because you are unrighteous. That's what he's saying. We said, you are being stricken by God. Oftentimes we do that in the church. We assume that somebody going through a trial, that it's because of sin. Not that it can't be. But that's the first thing we go to. That in this case, he was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. Way more than Job. Remember, Job was stricken, smitten of God to prove that Job would not give up. That Job would remain a child of God and he would not curse God. So we thought he was stricken and smitten of God. But really, he, verse 5, was pierced through for our transgressions. The payment that he took on the cross was not for his sins. It was for ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And here it says, by his scourging or stripes, we are healed. This is not just spiritual healing. It's talking about spiritual and physical healing. Christ bore the curse of the law. I think if we read these, this passage every day, we couldn't stop thanking God for what He did for us. I don't think... Just thinking about this passage in, in Romans chapter 3 this week, it's, I'm constantly reminded of what God did for me. 
I was hopelessly lost. And yet he came and he took his, our transgression. He was pierced in the side for our transgression. He was crushed, beaten, and bruised. Whipped until his backside was just mush. Drowning to death in his blood. That's what it was like when you hang on a cross. You can't breathe. You have to push up to breathe. Verse 6, all of us like sheep had gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We, we, didn't, we were sheep going wherever we wanted. We didn't want anything to do with God. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All who follow Jesus, all who God has called to be His own, all their sin, all the wrath of God was laid upon Christ. He became a curse for us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, verse 7. Yet He did not open His mouth. (coughs) He never said, it wasn't my fault. He did it. You know, when our kids get in a fight, they always blame each other, right? I didn't do it. He did it. She did it. Some of them being honest and some aren't. But in this case, Jesus could have said, I didn't do this. I didn't deserve this. But He didn't because He loved us. And He died because He loved us. He took it willingly on the cross. He didn't just, he could have opened his mouth. He could have cried out for the angels to come and deliver him, but he didn't because he loved us. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His death was due us. He took it for us. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, but yet he was with a rich man in his death because... He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isn't that interesting how, how God fulfilled all this in Jesus Christ? That to prove this verse true, God, typically they would just throw all the bodies of the crucified in a pile. No. What happened? Joseph came and he said, Joseph of Arimathea, I can't say his name right. He came and said, Give me the body of Christ. I want to put him in my tomb. That was a a way of God showing that Jesus had done no violence. He didn't deserve to be in the grave of the wicked. Verse 10. And this is so hard to believe. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It would please the Lord, our God, to crush him. Why? Because God hates sin. He knew in Christ, He saw all our sin on that cross. It was placed upon Christ, not as Christ's sin, but because our sin was placed upon Him, God was pleased to crush Him. God was pleased to put Him to grief. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This was our Lord. This was our Savior. He took everything that was due us on himself. If you're not a believer and you hear things like this, you need to, to think. This is what he died for. Are you, are you like the illustration that I used first? Atta, you're thankful that somebody died for you, but you're just going to go back to your cell and, and go back home like nothing really happened. Or are you going to be like the one who, like him, after he finds out who died for him, that it was not only just a random man, but it was the very son of the king. What are we going to do with this truth that we now know? That it was only through the blood of Christ that the wrath of God that was due us was taken away. Without that propitiation, without God providing a way, God had, because of His nature, to judge us. God hates sin. God hates those who live in sin. We could read so many more passages. I mean, Hebrews is full of this. Especially Hebrews 10, 11 and 12, or up, up to chapter... 11, we could read in Ephesians, we can read in Philippians, we can read in Corinthians, we can read throughout the Bible and we see constant reminders of this exact thing, that Christ took what was due us. Why? Because... At the very end here, verse 25, it says, This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over of the, the sins previously committed. So, 
throughout the time from the day that Adam and Eve sinned until this very day or to the time of Christ's coming, God had overlooked sins. Yes, He had provided a, an atonement system of sacrifice. And we see the Passover lamb. There are so many signs pointing to Christ and the need for Christ because they had to do it every year. If it had been a perfect system, it would only have been needed to have been done once. And that's what Hebrews tells us. But Christ, when He came, His sacrifice was perfect. So no more sacrifice for sins needs be made. That's why I can't stand behind the Catholic doctrine of communion. Why? Because they are sacrificing the blood of Christ, the, the body and blood of Christ, they say, every Mass. Why does He need to die again? Why does He need to be sacrificed again? He did it once for all. That's what Hebrews says. It's not my words. His sacrifice was perfect. He took the wrath of God. He redeemed us from sin. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? And I, I want to read a couple old authors, some old, some new, and what they said about this. This doctrine. Just, just so you get some other words, because I think oftentimes I'm not very good at, at illustrating, but if I haven't, then maybe this will help. Augustine said this, But as Christ endured death as a man and for man, so also Son of God as He was, ever living in His own righteousness, but dying for our offenses. He submitted as a man and for man to bear the curse which accompanies death. And as He died in the flesh which He took in bearing our punishment, so also while ever blessed in his own righteousness, he was cursed for our offenses in the death which he suffered in bearing our punishment. Spurgeon said this, God cannot look where there is sin with any pleasure. And though as far as Jesus is personally concerned, he is the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. Yet... When he saw sin laid upon his son, he made that son cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was not possible that Jesus could enjoy the light of his father's presence while he was made sin for us. Consequently, he went through a horror of great darkness, the root and source of which was the withdrawing of the conscious enjoyment of the father's presence. More than that, not only was the light withdrawn, but positive sorrow was inflicted. God must punish sin, and though the sin was not Christ by His actually doing it, yet it was laid upon Him, and therefore He was made a curse for us. God only knows the grief to which the Son of God was put when the Lord made to meet upon Him the iniquity of us all. The crown, all there came death itself. Death is the punishment for sin. 
And whatever it mean may mean in the sentence, and thou in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Christ felt. If you want the quotations, I can give them to you later. John Stott said this to the question, how could God express simultaneously his holiness and judgment and his love and pardon? How is that possible? How could God be just if the penalty was needed? He said, only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. We sinners still, of course, have to suffer some of the personal, psychological, and social consequences of our sin, but the penal consequence, the deserved penalty of alienation from God, has been borne by another in our place so that we may be spared it. We all can relate to sins that we've committed and we've had to deal with the consequences in this life, but Christ took the great penalty, the alienation of our sin. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Because if you leave the, the, the end of Romans chapter 3, we see, and I, I'll read it because I, I'm not going to go too much into this part because I think the point that he's getting to, he says, for the, so he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, that question that John Stott asked, why, how could God overlook sin? How could he pass over it? How can he let a wicked man go free? He had to send his son to die. There had to be a substitute. Jesus substituted for us, and so God can be just and justifier. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. There's no... By what kind of law? Of works? No. But of the law of faith. We have no right to boast. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. God is justifying both, whether they were circumcised or not, through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish Why? Because Christ completed the law. He fulfilled the law. So He finished it. When He said on the cross, it is finished, He had taken the curse of the law and done away with the law. Completed it. Fulfilled the law of God. Not done away. I need to clarify that. but (laughs) He took everything upon Him. He fulfilled the complete law. So the law has been Fulfilled in Christ. So what do we do? Really, what do we do? One, first point, we do not boast. That's what Paul says, right? We have no boast. We can't treat somebody else in the church of Christ as worse who is following Jesus because they came from a different background, because they've lived in sin in the past, or whatever it may be. 
if they are a child of God, they got there the same way we did, through the grace and gift of God. It should also, number two, it should create a desire to serve God. And I'm going to quote two guys. Again, Spurgeon said this. In light of what we've said, in light of what Jesus did, he said, It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. I don't want to be a mummy preserved at the the Science Museum in Louisville. I would rather be burned up for Christ. That's what he's saying, and that should be our cry. When we hear what Christ did for us, our greatest desire should be to be burned up for Christ, doing all to follow Him, seeking His Word, desiring to obey Him, and to be in His will. We should be burned up for Christ. C.T. Studd said this, he said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. Whether that's in this country, wherever you are, there is no sacrifice too great in light of what Christ has done for us. Thirdly, it should make us want to share this news. This is great news. Because we know, we talked about last week, we know all have sinned. And so, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we know that every person we encounter every day who has not found Jesus as their Lord and Savior will one day die and stand before God And God will say, I never knew you. What are we doing as Christians in the world we live in to share this great news? This gospel that Christ has given us. The news that if God had not given to us, we would still be in our sin, right? If Christ had not come for us, died for us, taken the wrath of God upon Himself, we would not be following God. We would be wicked, hopeless. If you're a believer, these points are true. The first three and the fourth one. It should create worship. Worship and praise. It should create in us a desire to praise God in song, with our lives, so it should create worship in our hearts. You know, I hope I quote this right. John Piper said, Missions exist because worship doesn't. We were created to worship God. And that's why missions exist, is because God has called all men 
from every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship Him. This was not meant to be a mission sermon, okay? But it's a part of it. When we know the gospel, we should be on mission for Christ about sharing His kingdom with all that we know. If you're an unbeliever and you're here, it should create repentance, terror of heart, a desire to know the Lord, joy, because you know that God loves you, that you've seen how God loves you, that He's taken the wrath of God away, but it should create godly repentance. There's a couple hymns that I want to read. Just I'm just going to read the verses, not the refrains. Then we're going to sing three songs together that I think would be a real help for us to express the gratitude that we have for what Christ did for us. Hymn entitled, Are You Washing the Blood? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Or the power of the blood. We know this one. We're going to sing this one. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you ever, would you owe ever, would you or evil a victory win? There's power in the blood. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be wider, much wider than snow? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's power in the blood. Would you live daily His praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. One more. This is a song we sang a while back, but we haven't sung in a while. Redeemed how I'd love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. Word rapture, joy. I know that the light of His presence with me doth continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see His beauty, the King in whose law I delight who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night.
I hope that you've been convicted, encouraged, and most of all, desiring to worship God because of what He did. Today's title is The Beautiful Exchange. Our sin for His righteousness. What a beautiful exchange. Will we live as though this is true? Or are we going to act like we somehow came to God on our own? I hope not. 